Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to episode 98 of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here this week with co-host Pete Wall. How are you, Pete? I am good, man. As we have been the last few weeks, I'm kind of slowly cooking in my office. Um, I'm going to do my best to survive to the end of the show, but um, I have left a window open. So if you hear sort of birds squawking and stuff like that and children frolicking, then uh, that's just the happy environment in which i live or more likely uh, people fighting or throwing up which also is a uh, part of my environment I, would ha- I mean at the time we recorded last week's episode i would say that might happen but it's only 20 past six and i Chel- unless cheltenham's gone downhill a lot since i've left i think you might be mate, all right mate <laughs> you've been to the lower high street the guy the guy behind me in the shop as i was purchasing some snacks for just before this show was uh, buying himself plastic bottles full of some sort of blue branded cider product of the sort of white okay. lightning variety, I think. So, yeah, classy place, man. Classy place. Come back and visit. Um, <laughs> anyway, we're doing a film show, Paul, and that film show is a virtual trip, an audio virtual trip through a cinema. This has certain sections which will allow you to experience, uh, first of all, the foyer, which is where we talk about issues, uh, news related to the world of film. Then we've got the popcorn counter. This is where Paul and I throw back and forwards reviews of things we've seen in the last week and maybe enjoyed. Then we get into a section called Coming Attractions. Watch the trailers and get excited about things coming up. We've then got feature reviews. What are we doing? Uh, Mamma Mia. No, we're not doing Mamma Mia. We're doing... uh, I've tried tried to bring myself to see that this week for the show and I just can't bring myself to do it. Not yet, anyway. I'm I'm close, but I'm not there yet. We're doing Hotel Artemis this week. Uh, The directorial debut of one Drew Pearce. Yeah, there were those openings, you know, as as, uh, avid uh, podcasters as we are, Paul, you look for those little openings, don't you? You go like, oh, I've got a free morning. I could scoot into the cinema and see X, Y, or Z and then talk about it on the show. And just like you, you could go to a 10.30am screening of Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. And then I caught up with myself and I was like, yeah, I'm not. I'm not even slightly doing that. So yeah, I haven't got a review for that film as, as of yet anyway. Although my fiance probably will be responsible for us going to see it at some stage. But yeah, as you say, Hotel Artemis is the centerpiece. When we finish with that one, we just have one last section, which is known as credits, where we'll tell you about something we think is good. It may or may not relate to films. First of all, though, this week has been coloured by San Diego's Comic-Con. So... Yes, San Diego, San Diego Comic Con. Before we get there, though, while San Diego Comic Con was on, I was at a panel meeting. We've talked about Exit we Six did Film indeed. Festival before, um, and this, in fact, we did a feature from it last year, I do believe. Uh, and this year, I've been very, very kindly invited to sit on the the judging panel of the film festival. And on Sunday, I had a very, very interesting day going through exactly what we were going to select uh, for the film festival, uh, what's going to make it in, and what isn't going to make it in. It was a very, very tough day i think there was 191 entries in total and i think we've whittled it down to something like 40 some 40 something films so it's a very very tough day i'm not going to say i'm not going to allude to what got in and what didn't because i will get in a whole lot of trouble for doing that uh but just to say that exit six film festival is coming up we'll be there again this year and i've seen the caliber of the entries and it looks to be very very good so uh yeah it's been a good experience being on the panel but i just wanted to throw that in pete just because it's something i was doing whilst whilst comic con yeah, was and, going and on i just want to throw in paul that the uh, the cops that we had in the background were actually on your end for the listeners uh yeah so so that's uh yes, that's really it was in <laughs> So don't panic, Pete's okay, yeah. Excited about that, man. And as you say, we're going to be doing at least one, if not more, little interviews and features in and around Exit 6 at the end of September. So we look forward to that. On a slightly, marginally bigger scale, though, San Diego's Comic-Con, Paul, you... Yes. Um, you... Let's get back you to know, that, yes. Some erstwhile uh, avid fan of sort of all things comic book, I think the sort of time of year or the particular pieces that are out at the time... From your perspective, because maybe you're, you can put the, our strongest foot forward in terms of covering it on this show, what grabbed your <laughs> yeah, attention fair, yeah. at Comic-Con this time round? Uh, it's, got, it's got to be Godzilla. It's got to be the Godzilla sequel, King of Monsters. I just, uh, that, it just excited me in a way a trailer hasn't excited me for quite some time. I think uh, the first film definitely divided people. I think people either love or hate it. I'm on the side of loving it. I've really, really liked it. I'm a massive fan of the old Godzilla films, which I think I've mentioned before. And this was just like, I mean, this is like fan service. Like when Spider-Man appears in a Marvel film, the amount of monsters they've thrown into the mix here, you've got Mothra, Rodan, King Ghidorah, who's like the series sort of, the series big 
the, the other big bag monster that's this monster from space is technically more powerful than Godzilla. Uh, just loads of other monsters thrown into the mix here. Um, I think it's going to be a whole heap of fun. And I think those people who didn't like Godzilla for the reasons there wasn't enough monster action in it aren't going to be disappointed by this. And I think the trailer was great and got me very, very excited. Although apparently there is a camera that drops into one of the shots of the trailer. But I'm going to blame that on it rushing to be ready for Comic-Con, not necessarily on the quality of the overall film. So that trailer excites me a lot. I'm very mm. excited for that. Um, the other thing that stood out for me, Pete, I don't know if you've seen this trailer, uh, the trailer for Shazam, um, which is uh, not that well-known DC character, I would say, but it's basically is uh, like a school-age kid who finds magical powers and can become the superhero Shazam, turns into this almost like Superman-esque character um, who has loads of special powers. And I think it's, it's interesting that the DC have, have chosen to adapt this and they seem, looking at the trailer we've seen, they've looked to have gone the straight up comedy route. So I think I'm kind of more intrigued by that because it's going down the straight up comedy route than I am maybe than Aquaman, for example, which is also there. I mean, what did you think, Pete? Is it, was there anything as kind of a, a not so geeky guy that kind of got you excited in terms of film wise? Or Well, I don't, I don't know, Paul. I mean, my, my fiance would probably correct you and say that I am incredibly geeky. It's just in maybe slightly different areas. But um, yeah, yes. I, I think some Something, and tell me if I'm wrong here. Was there some sort of teaser, um, if not an actual trailer, for uh, the next instalment of Wonder Woman? Uh, there was footage shown, wasn't there? There wasn't. I don't think it was released to the public, but there was okay. definitely footage shown behind closed doors of Wonder and this, Woman. And this yeah. is Wonder Woman in 1984 or 84, right? Is the, yes. the next one? And, yeah, and correct. what interests me and sort of excites me about that is, firstly, that I was a, a big um, advocate of, of people seeing and enjoying the the first movie. Secondly, the fact that Patty Jenkins is returning and. And um, so when you've got that continuity with the series, I think that there's a lot to look forward to because you've seen with a lot of superhero properties that they sort of change hands and they kind of change form and feel and tone. So I think I see where you're going with this, Pete, in a bit, but well done. But yeah, <laughs> I, but carry I, on. <laughs> I sort of feel a, a quiet confidence that this is going to be like a real highlight. And the only downside to, to my comments, I suppose, is the fact that uh, from what I gather, it's not going to be out until very late in 2019. So we've got quite a long time to wait for the next Wonder Woman. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I think I'm kind of with you. I think I, I didn't like Wonder Woman as much as a lot of people did. I didn't certainly didn't really enjoy the last kind of the the the, the final kind of bedlam, the, the CGI mess, as I described it at the time. I think, and I think actually, if we've got Patty Jenkins back this time round, I think it might you might find she has more artistic control over mm. what happens. So I'm I'm and I really like Gal Gadot in it. I thought she was fantastic. So actually, I'm hopeful that this will be in many ways a superior film to the first one, which I didn't rate particularly highly. Better than the other DC stuff, but not on a par with Marvel's work for me. Whereas I'm hopeful for this one. So yeah, I'm with you on that. I think Wonder Woman 1984 will certainly be, as it's called at the moment, I think that's what it's called at the moment anyway, will certainly be something to look forward to. So yeah, totally with you on that. I think Absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, stop me if this segue is too smooth, but you've just mentioned um, the MCU and, and Marvel, and um, it's probably about this time where we could transition our conversation into the other big news, aside from Comic-Con itself and all the myriad things. And to be honest, you know, listeners to the show, just go check out all the trailers for yourself and start to form your own opinions you probably have anyway yeah absolutely yeah. i mean we're not breaking any news over here on that front but um what has been breaking news over the last sort of week or so or sort of developing and un unraveling news is uh in relation to james gunn the guy that helms the guardians of the galaxy series that so far has made two movies both of which have been met with fairly wide acclaim and we've also really enjoyed reviewing and talking about on the show um, we'll talk about for example Dave Bautista later on in our feature review and his career has been you know reignited I think by the Guardians uh, well trilogy that hadn't yet have had a third movie now there is going to be a third movie but that movie at present will not be helmed by uh, James Gunn why is that Paul can you explain what's gone on with this in case anyone missed it which I imagine most people have caught up a little bit but what's the situation well basically Basically, James Gunn has been fired by Disney uh, from uh, a all future work, especially Guardians 3, which he just finished a first draft for, uh, for some controversial tweets. I, I think he believe he made back in 2008 to 2011, where, I mean, the, the tweets are not particularly funny. They are fairly, con they're fairly controversial, bad taste jokes about subjects such as paedophilia. AIDS and rape so you know they're, they're touchy subjects don't get me wrong and they're not the funniest of tweets 
whether or not this justifies James Gunn being fired from Guardians of the Galaxy or not is a whole different ballgame, I think. But this is why they've stated they fired him. Uh, I believe it was some uh, right-wing activist who I believe also has a rape conviction to his name has dug up all these tweets in an effort to try and prove that James Gunn is in fact a pedo- part of a secret paedophile ring, which is just insane. I mean, that whole side of it is probably should be just kept separate from the whole Disney firing him thing. So I think we'll touch on the Disney firing him thing and leave that well alone because the guy sounds like a nut job that's dug up, dug up the tweets anyway. Pete, where do you stand on this? Well, I... well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? That, that that you that you talk about there, I mean, that seems to be the era that we're living in where in order to take someone down, all you need to do is sort of sift around in the digital dust that has followed them from their sort of past uh, activity online and find something, anything that could incriminate that person and then, yeah, throw that out into the public domain or or, or sort of more so re-highlight it or retweet it or whatever the, the, the modern equivalent might be um, in order to get people to... To pay attention to any kind of seemingly inherent flaw in a person's character. Now, in the case of, of James Gunn um, and this situation, my first reaction to it, quite honestly, rather than like rage, anger, uh, or all the things that I've seen a lot of online, is is complete and utter lack of surprise. This seems unsurprising to me. Not unsurprising that James Gunn talks about paedophilia in an unfunny way. I'm not talking about his, his sense of humour or his past. We all knew who James Gunn was before he was involved in Guardians well, Apparently not Disney. <laughs> right. But, well, I don't know, man. I think Disney probably did too. I think what this is, is a wholly unsurprising attempt to just manage the narrative. Disney's narrative now will be, we've distanced ourselves from a man who's got this kind of icky past and this thing that is now in the public conversation. That's not a part of the sort of Mickey Mouse, shiny, happy image that we want to portray. So we've taken the steps required to make sure that we maintain our image. And I think, like, anybody who's surprised that Disney have taken this action, I think is a a little bit naive maybe about how massive corporations operate in this day and age. I mean, um, uh, do I seem off base to you? Did did it come as a surprise to you that not not the news, but that Disney would react in this way? Yes, and it ruined my Saturday when I found out, I'll be (laughs) honest. I mean, I just, if you're going to go back and sack people for things they've done in the past, then fire fucking Robert Downey Jr. for taking cocaine. There's proof he took cocaine. There's proof he slept with prostitutes. That's much worse than what James Gunn's here. In fairness. That's much worse than what James Gunn has done. In in fairness. Am I not right Yes, but they're chronologically different though aren't they because Robert Downey Jr's past indiscretions took place before he was rehired by or hired by Disney to be involved in a you know big money franchise that's the James Gunn's though yes that yes yes but what I mean is that at the point at which Robert Downey Jr was hired by the corporation the again going back to this idea the public narrative was the redeemed Robert Downey Jr is now some sort of like better more Christian looking figure because he has apologised for his trans. Uh, and now we can take him on. In this case, the narrative going in was that James Gunn is a guy that you've never heard of in terms of the Disney, you know, uh, empire. And so now that this comes to light, they need to control the narrative surrounding it. And this is why they've taken that action. But then why... Why employ a man who was originally who was originally wrote trauma exploitation movies if you're not going to look into his past? Those oh, I agree. I agree. I mean, record. I'm not arguing. So why have they employed him in the first place to then fire him for this? It just seems politically motivated more than anything. Of course else, it is. To me, of course anyway. it is. But like, of course it is. Yeah. That, that's exactly what I'm saying. I, I'm not agreeing with the decision. I don't think it's smart or prudent oh, or anything okay. like that. And I think that they're going to cut off their nose to spite their face because James Gunn has got. Uh, so much momentum behind that franchise and so many people gravitate towards Guardians now as a sort of more fun and entertaining alternative not least because I think of James Gunn's influence on the series that obviously this is going to damage them but I think what they believe is that it's going to damage them less than if they're connected to this negative press. See, I, this is the thing. This is where I think they're, they're being a little bit silly because I don't think people would, outside of like the people who listen to a podcast or read film news websites, most people probably don't even know this has happened, mm. to be perfectly honest with you. And if you look at it purely from a creative point of view, actually, the Guardians of the Galaxy films are, are certainly the most interesting from a creative standpoint of any of the Marvel films coming out. And I'm sorry, Brousseau brothers, like if Infinity War was fine and people seem to think Infinity War was the best thing since sliced bread. It was perfectly functional, it was fun but it's not a Guardians film. And apparently James Gunn directed the Guardians bits in Infinity War, which were by far the best scenes in Infinity War. So they are cutting off their nose to spite their face, I think, here, because they are, as I said, by far the best of the Marvel films by by quite some margin, I think. So I think it's, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens next. I know Dave Batista's come out and categorically said he's not happy with, with 
with what's happened. Um, I mean, I, be, I mean, the cast are contracted to do a third film, I think, come hell or high water. So if it, I doubt anything will happen, it would be nice to see the cast rally behind him, perhaps, and see where we go from there. But yeah, I, I just I think like, it smacks a politically motivated decision. I like the idea, by the way, of, yeah. of Dave Bautista being uh, categorically not happy. I, I kind of like have this image in my yeah. mind of Dave Bautista like choke slamming Mickey Mouse through a wall <laughs> or something like that. But yeah... Um, Going forward, you know the same Disney, the same Disney run by Walt Disney, who was not a nice man. Absolutely, himself, I mean that, that in irony yeah, like, cannot be yeah. lost on anyone who knows a little bit about this situation. But like, yeah, I think going forward, you've mentioned the Dave Bautista thing. I think that it's not unlikely that James Gunn will in fact be rehired once the dust settles on this situation. I would be wholly unsurprised again if he gets his job back once they've done their little bit of PR work that they think is going to in some somehow benefit the corporation. Um, I think solidarity will have weight. I think more the more more people, the more stars from that franchise who add their name to this sort of campaign in defense of yeah. James Gunn, you know, that's going to make that decision to rehire him more likely. And I think going back to something you said at the very beginning and, and the actual content of these tweets, no, he shouldn't be fired for them. No, we shouldn't dig up things from people's past. But also, it, you can't completely overlook, overlook the fact that as a public figure, if you're going to make jokes about like paedophilia, the Holocaust, or uh, like wanking off Justin Bieber or whatever, some of the content of that stuff was um then maybe maybe try a little bit harder to be actually funny um because yeah i'm not i'm not saying that's the thing i'm not saying they were funny in the slightest because they're not but also you he doesn't know as a writer at that point he's going to be working with disney does he like how, who would know that who could ever who could ever when they tweet at that that long ago suddenly go especially on the level of films he was making like if you look at Slither, if you look at Super, they're great films, they're exploitation. There's no way he had a clue he'd be getting a sniff at a Disney no, project. No, but, but, that's, but yeah, I agree, make them but that's kind of I what, agree, make But that's funny. kind of what happens when, you know, for, for want of a better way of phrasing this, when you make a deal with the devil. If you're going to get into bed with Disney, yeah. you can't then complain that you've been thrown out of Disneyland because you made Justin Bieber wank jokes in the past, you know? that That's their prerogative because they own the empire. So yeah, um, talking though, Paul, another beautiful segue here, talking of the way that um, you wouldn't know that what you were doing back in the past would influence, you know, your future timeline. Uh, one Dan Harmon's had a, a little situation come up over the last sort of week or so as well. Again, I, I'm sorry to repeat myself, pretty unsurprising if you know anything about Dan Harmon's like social media presence that Dan Harmon would go and make himself look kind of terrible um this time there have been or there has been a video uh, resurfaced which shows an abandoned or buried skit in which dan Harmon um jokes and acts out raping babies as a way of what was the satire even aimed at right the satire aimed and i actually i it was a plastic doll, I think, rather than a baby. It was a plastic doll the baby satire, that made baby sounds. The, the satire, the satire was it was so it was a clip called Daryl, and it was a satire of Dexter. Right, so yeah, it's basically it. Dexter is normalising and making comedy out of these really heinous crimes. And Dan's Harmon sketch called Daryl was satirising the fact that Dexter had made comedy out of really heinous killings. So actually, I don't think uh, it's fairly clever. I think. It, have you seen it? Funny, but have you seen it? Isn't more. I haven't, in fairness, Yeah, I haven't you won't, you it, won't so. think it's clever after okay, you've seen it. Right. It's just awkward. Like, right, I, I, yeah, no, I get it. Okay. I think that you can see where someone like Harmon would have an idea like that and think, oh, that's, you know, enough for Especially a... if you watch Rick and Morty. I mean, some of the, the some of the darkness in Rick and Morty is, is pitch, pitch black. So well, yeah, yeah you can see where that's the, the thing, man, though. Isn't it interesting that when Dan Harmon's got the, the sort of arm's length remove of animated characters, they can do absolutely anything. Uh, it's insane to think you can hide anything behind animation. Yeah. Like, if you, if some of the, if you look at any, if you look at South Park, if you look at Family Guy, even some of the Sim some of the Simpsons episodes, the things people get away with in animation, they could not do. With well, absolutely, action. and that and uh, that seems to get. But that, again, that's kind of a given. And when you see the video with sort of um, Dan Harmon's belly sort of sweating all over the the effigy of a baby, you think like maybe we could have just done this with an animation, and then we wouldn't have to go through this whole thing. You know, now I mean, yeah, Dan Harmon has had his issues, and the thing is that I think what separates these two stories, because um, of course they're connected by this sort of dread up past history that we should all not get so worked up about but what what separates these two stories is I don't think that this is really going to impact Dan Harmon's output in any discernible way I mean he's not working yeah. for Disney for example at present and I think that the people who who sort of um loyally follow Harmon's career and output would expect this kind of thing from him 
you know, much less be appalled by it. But yeah, I mean, also, if you, you think about the fact that maybe it wasn't that funny, everyone starts somewhere, you know, he's, it, he's, his early sketches won't be as good as his later material, there's absolutely no doubt. And it's a buried sketch anyway, so it's not like he's he's tried to put it out now and is still claiming it's a good piece of work. Well, buried by him, I think. Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, um, but I just think, yeah, it smacks of political motivation. James Gunn spoke out against the, the right wing of America, as has Dan Harmon, um, in recent months, and it appears that the the the, the all right have just gone after them in an attempt to ruin their careers. But yeah, with Dan Harmon, I don't think it'll work because, as you say, he pretty much does his own projects anyway, and he's never been a particularly easy man to work with. I think by his own admission, if you watch Harmon Town, so um, yeah, I don't think it impacts him too much. He's left he's left Twitter, um, but yeah, that's he, he's fine. been fired from his own show. He's done his best to yeah. sabotage his own career. He has that bit in Harmon Town where he gets hammered and goes out and does his live show and then has a huge argument with his girlfriend. I mean. The guy isn't trying to protect some shiny public image. So, yeah, I think that one's just going to disappear fairly, fairly quickly. And hopefully all the videos will as well, because it, it's not great. I mean, there are ways to deal with those topics and be funny, Paul. Um, if we point listeners in the direction of someone like Chris Morris, I mean, he's done stuff dealing with, uh, you know, child abuse and paedophilia that is genuinely funny, satirical and has something to say. But um, we've got more things to say and we can't talk about this stuff for the entire episode. So with that in mind, Paul Anderson, we will be back in just a moment with Popcorn Movies. And back we are with Popcorn Movies. Uh, Pete, I'm going to make a start this week, if that works for you. Um, this is a film uh, by a director that we both like very much, Lenny Abrahamson, uh, which is a film I've heard you, I think you recommended it to me and you've talked about quite a bit. Uh, I watched it about 20 minutes before this podcast, but I will put you out of your misery and tell you what it is, listeners. Uh, it's a 2012 film called What Richard Did, um, starring Drac Jack Traynor, who you probably will know from one of the awful Transformers sequels. I forget which one, but I think he made his start here, if I'm not mistaken. Pete, is that correct? You've seen this, haven't you? Uh, could well be, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. At least a breakout role, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so to set this one up, basically, Jack Traynor plays like this kind of popular Irish lad who plays rugby. Um, seems is very well established, I think, early doors for probably the first half of the film. is actually a very nice 18-year-old lad that kind of looks after girls, he's popular with his group of friends, he's af- athletic prowess, he's, he's an all-round good guy. Uh, and then uh, he gets drunk, he starts to have an issue with his girlfriend, and uh, something happens, which is basically what did Richard do. I won't give away what Richard actually does, because it's kind of the crux of the film here. Um, but it's a very, very effective dark drama, to be fair. I think, to, uh, um, yeah, certainly anchored by a very, very good performance from the young Jack Traynor, Lenny Abramson, I think, does understated uh, incredibly well, I think, with what the, what have I seen of his now? So Room's incredible. Uh, Frank, I really, really liked. But he's there's something mm. about the way he the way he shoots is just very, very understated. And, and then the films just have a like a gut punch towards the end. And there's a yeah. gut punch scene in this. Do you remember the scene in the beach house where I think it, it like it dawns on him what he's actually done? And like yeah. the kid's just in bits and you're just like, oh, wow, this suddenly has just hit you like that. And again, it's just it's another one of those films that just takes you, it builds slowly, really takes you by surprise. And yeah, it's, it's really, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's really, really good. Pete, what, what do you think of this? You've seen this, haven't you? It's, well, it's exactly the, the term that uses exactly the right turn of phrase, I think, a gut punch. I mean, this, something like Calibre that we reviewed recently, something like Super Dark Times, like those movies about someone just erring for a second just making one split second error of judgment and changing the course of their entire lives they're just compelling narratives like almost every time I see something like that on screen if it's handled by someone with talent like Abramson obviously is then yeah that it's not easy watching it can make you feel quite uncomfortable but it really takes you on this sort of emotional journey so yeah I, I totally co-sign I love that film it's, it's really really good and people I think it's a bit underseen as well because people love Frank people obviously flock to see Room at the cinema and it was sort of garnered with a load of awards and stuff but I don't think enough people have seen this so yeah get on it because uh, it's well worth your time yeah, what have you got? What have you got, Pete? So, first for me this week, Paul, I have got a film that I did as a coming attraction not too long ago. This one is the latest from Claire Denis, the French film director, um, Claire Denis, called Let the Sunshine In from 2017. It stars uh, Juliette Binoche in the lead role and then um, Javier Beauvoir, uh, Nicolas Duvachel, 
and uh, Gérard Depardieu, the, the listeners probably are aware of already. Um, interestingly, De- Gérard Depardieu is a man who once called Juliette Binoche in an interview nothing and said, uh, what's the secret of this actress uh, meant to be? Like, basically, the guy was saying he could not understand for the life of him why she got any acclaim. And now they've been cast together in a movie, so I guess that was not uh, uncomfortable or awkward at all on set during uh, the filming of this movie. I'll come back to that point, but first of all, I want to say about Let the Sunshine In... um, I mentioned this on social media if you follow our Instagram. It is one of the most egregiously mistitled English translations that you will ever see. Uh, the French title essentially hints at an interior uh, sunshine, happiness, enlightenment, light. And the English title sounds like a self-help book. So um, you bear that in mind if you're put off by the titling. Yeah, there seems thing to be is- a lot of these recently because the film I talked well, the film I did a really bad job of talking about last week, Racer and the Jailbird, was called, I think, mm. The Faithful in uh, on release in France or Belgium right. and yet over here it's called Racer and the Jailbird so yeah we need to sort it out but anyway sorry to interrupt Pete but yes I agree poorly translated titles are annoying <laughs> yeah yeah and I mean in the case of something like this I think it sort of misled certain reviewers as well because I've read really strange reviews where people are saying like oh this is a departure for Claire Denis it's sort of um, moving more towards something like a romantic comedy maybe she's going soft it's a, a late career softening it's none of those things at all if you've watched the movie I mean w- what this film is is um, Binoche's character is uh, middle-aged artist and divorced mother and she's kind of torn between two things this is like the axiom of like desiring and longing for connection to Mr. Right a new man a new love in her life and then the other side which is that she is an intelligent sort of empowered woman who is aware of the inherent flaws in mankind and particularly in the men within mankind and the ways in which people just attempt to sort of trick each other and lie to each other in order to fuck I mean a lot of it a lot of the movie is concerned with that there's an amazing sort of um, quote unquote courtship between her character and the Duvachel character where they're both sort of one after the other like pushing each other's buttons when you have already some backstory and some knowledge of what it is to date and what it is to uh, flirt with someone and what people actually mean behind the things that they say. It's a fantastic scene and I'll remember it, I think, for a long time. Um, Yeah, like I say, the standard line here seems to be that Claire Denis has gone soft. She hasn't at all. The final sequence in the movie, Paul, is where we see Gerard Depardieu. I think for the first time, or at least the major scene in the movie that actually has his presence in it. And it is a head-to-head between the two. He plays her psychologist and he's trying to talk her through the reasons why maybe she's failing to find this this sort of like unicorn love that may exist although she knows that maybe it doesn't exist or is a, a fallacy and um, Claire Denis rolls the credits to the film over the conversation and it's one of the most sort of like drippingly ironic exchanges that I've seen in film in a very long time where Binoche's character is taking this advice from Depardieu's character with so much in her eyes saying that she has very little respect um, or acknowledgement uh, acknowledgement of his ability to tell her anything that she doesn't know or that is any way instructive to the way that she's going to live her life. All of this might sound a bit woolly and a bit like that somebody said, uh, I think it's David, David Ehrlich uh, said this maybe this film couldn't be more French if it tried and you know all of these things that people like to throw at sort of French cinema about it being sort of uh, just intellectual like wankery and stuff like that and maybe it sounds like that as I describe it in which case maybe this isn't for you if you're a fan though of Binoche of Claire Denis or of uh, films about the realities of relationships as opposed to sort of the Hollywood version of those then I would recommend Let the Sunshine In from 2017 but it just be warned this is not a film about um it's not like eat pray love which is what let sunshine the sunshine in sounds like it, nothing yeah. like that. it sounds like i mean when i saw the title i think that did sound like a bizarre title for a claire denis film so uh yeah, yeah. and if you're not a fan of claire denis then you bloody well should be so sort it out and watch some of her films quite what have <laughs> yes. you got next man uh i've got a film that i massively has passed me by on release i think it was released in 1993 uh this is the piano uh, by Jane Campion. Um, now I've never seen this before, Pete. I can uh, well, not a history ashamed to say we've talked about this before. Neither People have I. Miss films. This is one of those films that I've missed. Uh, this stars Holly Hunter, Sam Neill, and Harvey Keitel, and a very young Anna Paquin. Um, the general premise of this is that Holly Hunter um, it seems to have been shipped off for an arranged marriage with Sam Neill. 
but she is mute, um, but very much likes playing her piano, hence why the film's called The Piano. Um, she arrives on the beach. Uh, Sam Neil, um, the arranged husband, as it were, uh, arrives to meet her. I think this is set in Australia. Fairly confident this is set in Australia or New Zealand, I think Australia. Um, Sam Neil arrives on the beach to meet her. Uh, and initially says they have to leave her piano. They can bring all the other stuff, but they have to come back for the piano. She's most upset. Uh, Harvey Keitel, who seems to be um, a white man embedded with the natives, uh, decides to buy the piano, uh, seemingly to charm Holly Hunter's character. Um, they kind of fall in love. They have this kind of weird relationship where he offers her a chance to buy the piano back key by key. If she does things like play naked for him, eventually they sleep together and the film kind of goes on from there. Um, it is beautifully, beautifully shot, Pete. And the, the score, which is quite famous and deservedly so, is, again, just hauntingly beautiful. So from a technical standpoint, I, there's a lot to like about this film. It looks fantastic. I think Holly Hunter's performance is great. I'm always a fan of Sam Neill. Um, and Harvey Keitel, I think, is... Well, I'm not sure what Harvey Keitel's accent is in this. So, yeah, from a technical standpoint, there's a lot to like here. And I can see some of the love for this film. From an emotional standpoint, I don't really get what Campion was trying to do here. I think that, again, trying, we try not to give away any spoilers to this, but there's, there's sort of scenes in the second half where I just don't really get the motivation. I think there's a lot been said about the fact this was from Jane Campion and a female director, and a lot have been said that actually Holly Hunter in some ways is, is an empowering female character. Now, there's certain scenes of kind of abuse that happened later in the film, and she just seems to go running back to Sam Neill's character. So for me, it doesn't smack of as such female empowerment as perhaps as perhaps a lot of people have said it was. Now, maybe that's because I didn't see it in 1993. I will accept that perhaps if I'd seen this film in the context of when it's released in 1993, I may have had a different outlook on it. But for me, it left me a little bit emotionally cold, and I don't really have that much of interest in seeing a stark, bollock, naked Harvey Keitel, if I'm entirely honest with you. Some of the sex scenes in it did, I think, and I don't think it's deliberate, well, it can't be deliberate, some of the sex scenes in it did remind me of The Room a little bit, which made me laugh in the wrong places. Um, so, yeah, it's. I would say see it if you haven't watched it. It's a fascinating film from a technical perspective, but the emotional side of it left me a little bit cold. I have to say I came away a little bit disappointed compared to what I was expecting. Interesting enough, Paul, I'm not going to review it, but I saw the, the movie Dead Calm from from the late 80s the other day with Sam Neill. With Sam uh, Neill on the yacht. With Sam Neill yeah, on Sam Neill on the yacht yes. playing the husband to <laughs> Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman in that movie is like 20 years old and they filmed, and Sam Neill's like 43 or something <laughs> like that. So, yeah, it's a, an interesting one. Anyway, um, second for me... Oh, and I wanted to say, Jane Campion, of course, I've talked about this week, and I was trying to think why. It's because she was the director of the first series of Top of the Lake of with the Elizabeth Lake. Moss, yeah. which is really good. And when you were saying, like, this looks beautiful, I mean, it's kind of like a calling card of hers. So, yeah, check that out, too. My second actual review, though, Paul, is um, for a film called Murder by Death from 1976. Now, check out this um, ensemble that we got going on here. This is a film from director Robert Moore. It is very, very silly. It's a farce that is sort of sending up the conventions of the whodunit, where a load of um, world-renowned detectives are gathered in the home of a character played by actual Truman Capote in order to try and solve the unsolvable, because someone's going to be murdered within the next X amount of time, and you've got to figure out who it is and who the guilty person is, etc. The cast is made up of uh, Peter Falk, a.k.a. Uh, Columbo, uh, in a role where he plays this kind of uh, just like walking, talking, hard-bitten film noir trope of a guy and has a lot of fun doing that. Uh, Alec Guinness, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi, is in this thing as a blind butler uh, called Benson Mum, because why not? <laughs> yeah. um, we've also got Peter Sellers. Now, more on this later, but um, of course, uh, Clouseau slash uh, many characters in Doctor Strangelove and elsewhere. Incredibly talented, Peter, Peter Sellers. In this thing, he plays a character called Sidney Wang, who is a Chinaman, Paul, and it is about as offensive and out of date as it okay. sounds. Yeah, I can see the problem with that. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've got Truman Capote that I mentioned. We've also got David Niven, who here plays this well-to-do character called Dick Charleston, and his wife is played by Maggie Smith, or Dame Maggie Smith, we should say these days. We've also got uh, James Cromwell, um, who was recently in Fallen Kingdom, the Jurassic Park movie, incidentally, but more pressingly stuff like The Green Mile and L.A. Confidential. Um, and and finally, I, I wanted to mention, Paul, we also have Faye Ray from King Kong, brackets, 1933, 
playing a doorbell. Okay, I'm intrigued now. Um, yeah, she plays a yeah. doorbell that sort of makes screaming noises when the okay. characters arrive at the mansion. So, yeah, this is all clearly goofy. Casual racism aside, how was it? <laughs> yeah, it's goofy, goofy fun. It knows what it is. Um, it's... All, that's all fine, as long as the movie is funny. There's a very high gag count. A lot of the time, Paul, it is not funny, until it's very funny indeed. It's one of those where like, you kind of go through a load of jokes that miss, a lot of them, to be honest, around Peter Sellers dressed as a Chinaman with a terrible accent. Um, and then you get to certain bits, particularly, in my opinion, centering around this Dick Charleston character played by David Niven, who delivers these like deadpan lines with such a crisp, like incisive way of um, enunciating that like, it just hit me so hard. You know like when you're sat on your sofa watching a movie and you're completely like calm waters and then from nowhere, like huge waves of laughter come out of you from somewhere deep inside. That was how I reacted to some of the sequences with David Niven. It was just brilliant. Um, the Wang character threatens to kind of torpedo this whole thing, this whole project for modern audiences, to be honest, because it is uncomfortable and it is quite awkward at times. And it's a low point as far as I'm concerned for Peter Sellers' career, at least in retrospect. But overall, with all this stuff to look at, all these characters, like clearly, all these actors, I should say, clearly having a good time messing about, there's enough to make this good, if not if not great. It's not a great film, but it's it's got its moments for, for a certain... A sequence with a scorpion in particular, look out for it. What's next for you, Paul? Uh, this is uh, the, one of the recent Netflix releases. I think it was a Netflix exclusive anyway. Certainly this side of the pond it has been. Uh, this is The Legacy of a Whitetail Deer Hunter, directed by Jodie Hill, starring Josh Brolin and Danny McBride. Uh, so the concept of this basically is Josh Brolin seems to be born to play this character in fairness um, and is having a bloody good time playing what I would say is your kind of archetypal redneck American hunter uh, who wants to take his son hunting um, for the first time I think with his grandpa's rifle but goes to pick up his son from his um, divorced wife and whereas his stepdad has bought him what looks like a semi-automatic M16 to go hunting with. Um, is it Scoot McNary? I think it's Scoot yeah, Scoot McNary. McNary. Yeah. Scoot, Scoot McNary is the stepdad, isn't he? He buys his son this, yeah. this much better gun. Um, and then Danny McBride is his hunting uh, hunting buddy who is the, also a documentarian, so he's going to make a documentary of them, uh, him taking his son on the first hunt, uh, which all sounds like it should be very funny coming from Jodie Hill, who's the man behind Foot Fist Way um, and has worked with Danny McBride, amongst other things, has worked with Danny McBride. He's and down as well. It is Eastbound and down, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so you'd think this would be very, very funny. And again, Josh Brolin, in fact, he's on quite good form here and seems to be enjoying himself a lot. Um but I don't really know what they were trying for here, Pete. For me, the, the tone was all over the shop. I don't know. I, I came away just going, if that was supposed to be funny, then that film's failed. If it was supposed to be dramatic, then I suppose it was okay. You've seen this, haven't you? What, uh, do you see what I mean? I'm not sure where. Yeah, it's, where it's they were very going with it. flat. It's very flat. It's like a, a cake that sort of started to rise and then sort of caved in on itself at, yeah. at some point in the, in the oven. I mean, the, the thing that stood out to me as being comically like rewarding, if, if we can really do around for something is that this Danny McBride character who plays the documentarian who's yeah like living in the shadow of the great uh, huntsman um, character he is so like downtrodden and sort of desperate to establish himself as having any kind of sway in decision making that that like Danny McBride's the kind of actor who can do that like uh, yeah downtrodden sort of disappointed slightly aggrieved character quite a lot of justice and I enjoyed that but like it doesn't really go anywhere does it I mean it no. just kind of drifts around in the wilderness for a while and then and then they come home yeah it just yeah it doesn't go anywhere it's not the gag rate is it's just not particularly funny again i just don't get what they're going for i, I don't understand like you'd, you'd think funny but i'm not sure and maybe i've maybe i've misread this as meant to be a drama but as i said if it was meant to be a drama it's missed on that level no it's, as well it's a comedy movie for sure yeah. i mean you can yeah. see the sort of like um trace like pencil outlines of where they've constructed comic stuff like the kid being all like old beyond his years and like phoning his girlfriend and having this really involved relationship even though he's like 12 years old and from the south yeah the, the fact that he does parkour and like they they have a lot of fun with that even though that seems like a reference is about 10 years out of time 
Um, yeah, I mean, there are ideas here, but it just maybe seems like one that sort of sat on the shelf for a while, and then it was like, oh, we've got the time and the budget to do this. Let's just get do it you think out. Maybe, do you think it was made, sat on a shelf, and then Netflix went, we'll have it. Josh yeah. Brolin's, Josh yeah, Brolin's I, big at the moment. I do it's think probably that. Probably made years ago. And actually, yeah, because Josh Brolin is quite big in this. And in the recent films that I've seen shot, even in Sicario 2, he's built like a shithouse because of Cable in Deadpool 2 and obviously when he played um, Thanos in Infinity War. It, look, it looks like a different Josh Brolin in this. So there's a possibility it's been finished for a few years and Netflix has just gone, fuck it, we'll buy that. Feels Get it like out there it. where Josh, yeah. Brolin's, Josh Brolin's famous at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it, man. And like, let's not underestimate the... Uh the clicks of um, you know the throngs of stoners of the world and if you're in any way worth your you know membership card to, to the stoner, stoner sort of uh, inner circle then you know who Jodie uh, Hill is you know who Danny McBride is and you're probably yeah. going to gobble up anything that they do even <laughs> if it's not very good so yeah I think you've hit the nail on the head I think that's probably where this has come from and it's a shame because I expected a great deal more yeah I, I was enjoy- I was looking forward to this when I put it it was a pleasant it was a surprise it appeared I knew nothing about it before it turned out when it did tow up, I was like, oh, can that be bad? Yes, it was. Mm. Uh, what have you got next? <laughs> uh, so lastly for me, and we're going slightly longer in this section because we've just got the one feature this week, I have got my thoughts on War on Everyone. This is one that Paul talked about, uh, you talked about, I should say, Paul, uh, just a little while ago. It is directed by John Michael McDonough, who, of course, is the brother of the other McDonough. What's his name? Martin. Um and Martin McDonough, of course, is the guy who directed Three Billboards, which we reviewed not long ago and got awards acclaim and stuff like that. John Michael McDonough directed uh, The Guard and Calvary and also was the writer, I believe, on both of those projects and is the writer here as well. In this one, we have uh, at centre Alexander Skarsgård, he of pouring uh, Lego bricks over Nicole Kidman's head in Big Little Lies and being terrifying. We've got Michael Pena, we've got Theo James that Paul and I were talking about off mic. He's a sort of English actor who seems to be getting roles. I'm not quite sure why. Um, and Is then he we've English got Theo Tess- James. I thought he was okay. No, he's, he's very in- dude. Okay. He's very English. Uh, then we've got uh, Tessa Thompson swoon. Um, and we've got a guy, uh, Caleb Landry Jones, who you will just see in loads and loads of stuff. I mean, he was in American yeah, Maze awesome. as a, a weirdo. He was in Get Out as a weirdo. He is the guy that you call if you want a weirdo. And in this, he's like weirdo turned up to 11. It's, it's quite wonderful to behold uh, th- this thing. But my thoughts on the story uh, as, as it plays out on screen are kind of my thoughts on the McDonough's at large, which is that both Martin and John Michael McDonough are actors, directors. They write really good roles for actors and they give actors the possibility to show off a great range. Alexander Skarsgård in this is having the best time of his entire life. He has a sequence. So I should say <laughs> the, the two central characters are like these cops. They make their own rules. They don't listen to anybody else. They've thrown the rule book out. They kind of li- like live in how they were something like bad lieutenant, I guess, except maybe yeah. slightly less seedy in, in some ways. Um, they're having a time like running the game until they bump into a crime kingpin that might have more power than they do and that's the Theo James character which is terrible miscasting as far as I'm concerned but he does his best but like the problem with the McDonough's from my point of view is yeah they write great characters they don't write great screenplays and they don't write great stories and I think like how I felt about a lot of their work it seems unfocused and it seems incredibly pleased with itself and War on War on Everyone is it has really funny moments it has isolated sequences that work really well it has some actors performing like Caleb Landry Jones great in this Alexander Skarsgård great in this the sum of those parts is so much less than what you would expect from all of the talent that's you know clearly going to work in their in their cause so like War on Everyone to me doesn't work it's not half as funny as it should be and it's not half as compelling as it should be and I'm saying all that even though I'm currently deeply in love with Tessa Thompson and she wears a vest in this thing man so yeah (laughs) I I, I don't know like it just confirmed my my slight bias against the McDonough's I think this movie Um, tell me why I'm wrong if if no I mean no I think I I think I like them more than you do but I I can't deny there's faults with their with their films and they're, they're not like the the round the fully fully rounded filmmakers that I would say a lot of people think they are, and yeah, War on Everyone. I I think I enjoyed it more than you did because I think the what what works really works for me in that film, and I enjoyed it on that basis. 
but yes, I can't really argue but, with much of what you said there, to be honest. But having said all of that, the sequence where Alexander Skarsgård gets drunk is just one of yes. my favourite scenes that <laughs> yeah. I've seen recently. And I just wanted to say, to, to cap off my point about the McDonough's being like actors, directors, guess what? John Michael McDonough's next project, he has enlisted Mark Strong, Rebecca Hall and Ralph Fiennes, Rafe Fiennes, in a film called The Forgiven. So like everybody and their, you know, well-connected actor cousin is queuing around the block to work with yeah. these guys. But I just don't think that the films that they end up making are of as much value as they should be. Um, and I guess I'll leave it there. Have you got anything else, Paul? Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> that, brings us, that brings us nicely to coming attractions, which will be after this brief interval. So, yes, we are back with the coming attractions section. I'll go first, Paul. This is something that's coming up that I am looking forward to. Released on August 3rd in the UK, at least. This one is called Hearts Beat Louder. And it's a film I didn't know much about at all until I did a bit of research for this show, this episode of the show. It's directed by a guy called Brett Haley. Again, don't know a lot about him. The reason that I'm interested is that we've got Nick Offerman, he of um, Ron Swanson, Parks and Rec fame, alongside uh, an actress called Kirstie, uh, Kiersey, I should say, Clemens, um, from the TV show Easy that's on Netflix that I really like. Um, we've also got uh, Ted Danson, people will know, Tony Collette, we've talked about loads recently, and Sasha Lane. Sasha Lane, her of the central role in American Honey, which was like our film of the year a couple of years ago. So I've yes. be kept tabs on her since, and I'm kind of interested in all her projects, I guess. Uh, this one tells the story of a father and daughter who form an unlikely songwriting duo in the summer before she leaves for college. It kind of sounds a little cheesy, but um, why be interested? Well, I suppose for me, it's well, that cast for a start. That <laughs> cast, and it's the fact yeah. that Nick Offerman's relationship with Megan Mullally as his wife, uh, as uh, you know, um, recorded, I guess, in social media form, is so compelling that I just find myself more and more interested by the real life man behind Ron Swanson. So that's enough for me to be interested in this thing. Um, in addition, yeah, well, I mentioned already Sasha Blaine. Um, it will be so interesting to. See See where her career tra trajectory goes after American Honey was to us such a, a smash and I think critically if not commercially such a smash so yeah August 3rd not long to wait that one is called Hearts Beat Louder Paul what have you got? Uh, talking of Lenny Abramson as we did earlier I've got his latest films are coming attraction I think it comes out well, certainly stateside 31st of August it's a little way off yet uh, this is called The Little Stranger um, it looks from the trailer to be a gothic sort of drama horror which I'll be interested to see Lenny Abrahams take on the horror genre. Uh, starring Dom Hall Gleeson, uh, he looks alright in this though, to be fair. I'm not sure I can forgive him for Star Wars Last Jedi quite yet, because he was atrocious in that film. Uh, uh, Will Poulter and Ruth Wilson, who people might be aware of, is the serial killer that um, Luther has an on-off thing for in the Luther TV series. So she's an up-and-coming British actress, I believe. Um, yeah, Lenny Abramson doing a horror, Pete. I think that's all we need to know, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one um, of those, Lenny Abramson, yeah. it's like you need to know that he's doing it, and then that's enough. Yeah. And that's yeah. it for me. So, yes, Lenny Abramson's making a horror film. It's out in August. Everyone go and see it. I hope it will be great. Brilliant. We will be right back, then, with our feature review for this week, which is Hotel Artemis. And back we are. Uh, Hotel Artemis, indeed. It's our only feature review this week. As we mentioned earlier, we just couldn't bring ourselves to see Mamma Mia, whatever this thing's called again. Uh, so apologies, listeners. We may catch up, but we may not. So as, as Paul mentioned earlier, this uh, Hotel Artemis is the directorial debut, at least feature-length directorial debut, of Drew Pierce. Drew Pierce, people may know, if they're really on the ball, as the writer of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, or one of, there may have been more than one, uh, and Iron Man 3, at least story by credit for Iron Man 3. But here moves into the director's chair and they've got together this incredible cast um, so we've got Jodie Foster playing a nurse having had like two years off from acting I think um, we've got Sophia Bautella um, that you, you'll know from The Mummy and the Step Up film not step up films uh, dance films I don't know uh, we've also got Dave Bautista of course from Guardians we mentioned earlier Charlie Day from Always Sunny who is uh, always entertaining we've got Sterling K Brown who is in Black Panther we've got Jeff Goldblum that we both are big fans of we've got Brian Tyree Henry from the show Atlanta with uh, Donald Glover we've got Jenny Slate from Obvious Child and stand-up comedy uh, we've got Zachary Quinto from Star Trek who of course plays Spock in the newest Star Trek films we've got Father John Misty the musician uh, in this thing is he in yeah, this I yeah. didn't spot 
was in, in, in the oh, okay. background, Blink, and you may miss him. Uh, and you've got Nathan Davis Jr. from Detroit, which we like, the Catherine Bigelow movie recently. So, like, incredible, incredible ensemble cast gathered, all in the service of this guy, Drew Pierce. Could he come through with the goods? What we have here is, well, I've, I've actually written a whole page to, uh, to set up this film, so I'm going <laughs> to give it to you right now, uh, Paul. The nurse, played by Jodie Foster, runs a members-only back-alley hospital for criminals in a kind of near future. I think it's 2028 in the movie. A dystopian version of L.A., which is rapidly being overrun by rioting mobs, uh, clamouring for water. This water situation is brought about by the fact that it is now a resource which is entirely in the control of, like, ruthless private capitalist owners. A little bit like now, but like an extreme version of now. Um, (laughs) In her work, the nurse is aided by an orderly that's Dave Bautista's character he's called Everest in this and he is literally a man mountain uh, he doubles as her enforcer as you would imagine when you've got a guy of that size on your on your team when the wolf king of LA <laughs> Yes, folks, that is the Jeff Goldblum character in this thing. Uh, requires There's a film in which Jeff Goldblum's got the Wolf King. That just I know. That should be exciting. That, that kind of one of those, where, <laughs> like the Abramson thing, where it's like, I've heard yeah. that and I'm in my seat. But yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, Jeff Goldblum's character requires urgent treatment. So the Artemis, this, yeah, like back alley ER, I guess, uh, faces a crisis because there's a cop inside the, facili- uh, the facility, I should say, played by Jenny Slate, who has been admitted because she has some connection to the Jodie Foster character's past. This past is the sort of thing that clouds Foster's ability to do her job without issue, which is that her son died in possibly suspicious circumstances in the past. She's never fully been able to get over that, as you would, you know, kind of expect, but it's made her an agoraphobic who's fearful of ever leaving her facility. In order to keep the status quo, she has made a set of rules that cannot be broken. One of those she breaks herself, and that's letting a cop come inside a place that's teeming with criminals. Before we get to our thoughts, though, here is a little clip. Hey, are we safe in here from doomsday? I mean, are these walls fortified with anything? Those people are animals. They just want clean water. Well, then they can get a fucking job and pay for water like the rest of us. You don't like that? You one of those bleeding heart types? Well, hey, cops kill poor people, poor people kill cops. That's the circle of life. Hakuna Matata. Easy for the robots. Swimming in your Alta Canal. Take one in an hour, and then after that, you can go. All right. Hey, uh, my TV's broken. I want to watch your riots. There's an old one in the game room. It's hardwired. It should be working. Hang on. You want me to go out there with the criminals? Hakuna Matata, buddy. Oh, that's cute. Now, I've got a feeling that, well, I've got a feeling that one of us would have liked this more than the other one, Pete. But what, what, do, we, what do we think? I've, got, I've just got that feeling about this film. I think you've got that now, feeling you... based on, on actual solid knowledge. But, uh, <laughs> but go with knowledge it. Yeah, go of Letterboxd, yeah. But perhaps I've looked on Letterboxd. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Um, yeah, I mean, you've set it up incredibly well there. And I think to start with, Jodie Foster is... We can't really argue that Jodie Foster is brilliant here. The way she, I've never seen her dodder around like a sort of helpless old lady before in the manner of which she does here. But she does it in such a way that she's still got like a commanding presence about her. So I think that the cast, as you say... I think are generally all really good to be fair. Jeff Goldblum is clearly having the time of his life as a character called the Wolf King. Dave Bautista is an actor that actually I think is getting more and more respect as I think he does more and more roles, not just as a wrestler. I think if you look at the people that have come from the WWE background, he's certainly the most accomplished of the ex-wrestler actors. So I think Dave Bautista is great in this. Uh, yeah, so I think the cast, as you mentioned, I think I think do a very good job with with what they've got. Uh, to deal with now, for me, the film isn't perfect by a long shot. And you mentioned the you mentioned the baggage that Jodie Foster's character is carrying, and I think a lot of that that backstory is quite unnecessary and actually very very clumsily put into the film. And I do I will say I think that harms the film. That being said, I just think there's there's something about this, and there there are comparisons to be made here, which a lot of people have made to the Continental Hotel uh, in the John Wick films. Um, and I have to say, having come out of Hotel Artemis, I think those are unfair. I think this is different enough from John Wick to differentiate yourself, and I don't think that ultimately does harm it. For me, it's not a perfect film by a long stretch, but there's just something felt very very different about the way this was put together. I really like it. It was very stylish. I think. 
I'd happily watch a standalone film with Sofia Batella play her assassin character in this film because I think she's great in it. Um, but yeah, it doesn't all work. It's not a great film, but I still came out of it really ha- having really really enjoyed it. Pete, where do you where do you stand? Yeah, on this? I guess I'll jump in on on some couple of things you said there about about characters. First of all, yeah, let's make no mistake. Sofia Batella here is dressed like freaking Chun Li with the like double uh, high. Um, cut like slits in the dress thing that allows her to like kick fools in the face and stuff uh yeah so we've got um sophia bartella yeah kicking people's heads in wearing an awesome outfit love that totally agree let's get a spin-off film going we've got dave bautista here who is fun but i feel like guardians have sort of exploited to the max that thing about dave bautista being massive but also sensitive and it feels a bit second hand in this movie maybe um yeah charlie day sort of shouting and stuff charlie day i think is playing against type not not 100% successfully for me in this film, but go on, sorry. Yeah, yeah, like, I agree, man, that you will know, and it's always sunny as well, like, crime world clout, which he runs with as best he can, but, like, you don't totally buy into, and talking of not totally buying into things, I feel like, yes, the Wolf King of LA is an amazing name for a character. When you hear it's Jeff Goldblum, that thing feels like a goof in a film that isn't trying necessarily foreboding or fear, kind of absolute kingpin character that he was supposed to be, because it's Jeff Goldblum, he's a funny guy, you want him to say something funny and yeah I, that part sort of fell slightly flat for me I think like the kind of um, the atmosphere around that character just felt slightly off I think Zachary Quinto as well looks like he's struggling a little bit with playing the the son who's going to follow in the lineage of his father played by Goblin himself yeah I, I like elements of the movie it just felt like this film set up a world that it didn't really know what to do anymore. and then it has a very underwhelming way of coming into the station at the end where like it's like, oh, that's just over then. It felt like an episodic thing, like we were going to get a new episode or something like that. I think I kind of see where you're coming from, though. And yeah, I did think maybe, as you just said, maybe we're setting up a universe here. And then maybe if we've got spin-off films about the characters, that might be quite cool. And then they kind of just close down, almost like shut the door on the whole universe with the end of it. So I do see where you're coming from there. I think it's, for me, again, as I said it earlier, it's not perfect, but it's, it's an enjoyable genre piece. I like any sort of, sort of near-future sci-fi or anything vaguely sci-fi will get me probably onto a seat anyway. And I think, it, for me, it was a solid enough genre piece that I enjoyed it. And I think it's, it's certainly... It's an interesting project to pick for Drew Pierce to pick as his first directorial, his directorial debut. I'll be intrigued to see what he does next. I think there's enough, probably, I enjoyed it more than you, I think, for sure. I think there's enough good here to mark him out as a director to watch. But Yeah, I'm imagining, like, not not that I'm saying this is a sort of thing, but, like, it must be relatively cheap in the sense that it's all sort of limited storytelling, basically one location, fairly few exterior shots and stuff like that. So that, to yeah. me, kind of made sense. And, yeah, you know, all power to him. He's pulled together this amazing, amazing cast and they've done something with it. I just kind of wish there was a little bit more to, to hang my, my hopes on, like, in terms of... Yeah, if there were a sequel to this movie, I don't know that I'd be that excited. Unless, of course, it is that Sophia Bautella kick people in the face spin-off. And, like, the bit where Sophia Bautella says, don't cross my line, is the highlight of the movie for me. <laughs> um, I won't say anything more than that, but it is quite wonderful. And it's reminiscent oh, yeah. of something yeah. like the Hammer sequence in Old, in Boy. Old Boy. So, yeah, like, yeah, r- really, sure. yeah, yeah. really good yeah. fun, really violent fun. But, like, it bursts into all this violence towards the end. But it's like, when we were doing that kind of movie, I just wanted more of that. I don't know. It just kind of fell between two posts, and I ended up. It just left me a little bit cold. I don't. Know. I don't know. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I liked it more than you did. We'll leave it at that. I think. But <laughs> well, we won't leave this episode at that, though, Paul, will we? Because what we're going to do at the end of the show, as we always do, is the credits section, and this is where we talk about something that we think is really, really good. So I can't be sort of like half-hearted or down on whatever this is because I've chosen it myself. Paul, what have you got for credits this week? Uh, so credits. So this is uh, a Netflix special by uh, I believe Australian uh, comic called Hannah Gadsby who isn't someone I've heard of before this. I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon and say I've been a massive fan for years because I've never heard of her before this was recommended to me. Uh, This is a stand-up comedy special called Nanette. Um, And I won't go into too much detail because it will spoil it. Um, It starts off, I would say, as traditional stand-up comedy and is pretty funny as it goes along. Uh, What it turns into, and there's been a lot of hype around this, I think deservedly so, is... 
a deconstruction of comedy like which I've never seen before. Um, uh, be prepared. It's not an easy watch. It gets quite emotional in places, but it is qu something quite, quite special, Pete. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, seek it out um, and make everyone else watch it. Yeah, I, I've said to you before we came on, Paul, that I've started watching this and, and to my discredit didn't finish, but not because it was in any way bad, just because I didn't have the time to, to finish it at that point. But yeah, all I see now in terms of social media people and stuff that I follow is like, you got to see it, you got to see it, you got to see it. So it's quite a buzz around this thing and I definitely will catch up with the rest of it as quickly as, as possible. Um, from my side, it is a recommendation for a film director, I suppose. I've been doing a little bit of pumping up Elizabeth Moss. That sounds wrong. Uh, I've done a bit of, of promotion of the career of Elizabeth Moss on social media this week, and it got me thinking about like what has really elevated her apart from her obvious talent. And I think that one of the keys in the Elizabeth Moss story, um, and in terms of her acting work, is the director Alex Ross Perry. Um, I would be remiss then if I didn't get on this show and tell people to go and watch Alex Ross Perry's films. The two that are particularly related to Elizabeth Moss because she's in them are Listen Up Philip, which is a sort of ish Philip Roth the author takedown, although that's never directly mentioned. Um, and the other one is uh, Queen of Earth. In Listen Up Philip, she's with Jason Schwartzman and he is horrible and toxic and her boyfriend and she's trying to get sort of a word in edgeways and get her feelings understood at any point. Um, and the Queen of Earth, she's opposite Catherine Waterston, who uh, folks will know from Inherent Vice and elsewhere. They're both really, really good. They play these like friends with a frayed relationship. And uh, yeah, there's so much to like. I mean, Alex Ross Perry stuff is dark but it's often also funny his next project is also going to star elizabeth moss it's called her smell and in that movie is like a whole load of great people again um amber heard cara delavine dan stevens that we really like virginia madsen that i love so yeah check out alex ross perry's stuff i think at least one of those movies is streaming at present if not track me down and kill me um looking me straight in the eye like bautella in that hotel artemis <laughs> bit um it's been a pleasure, Paul. I think that's the end of our show. Social media connections are available. We like to hang out in, you know, brightly lit places like Facebook or Instagram. Um, look up Strangers in the Cinema there. If you want to directly contact us and tell us just how lovely we sound in your ears, then we've got an email, which is strangersinacinema at gmail.com. Um, apart from that, Paul, what else is there to say for this week? Anything? Uh, goodbye, I think, is what I'm going to say next. <laughs> that seems appropriate to me, man. We will be back in a week's time. Until then, uh, take care of yourselves. And uh, this has been Strange in the Cinema. Shut up and sit down.